Hi, everyone. Uh, today, we'll be talking a little bit about stateful services and how we at Netflix uh, iterate on them. Uh, my name is Joey Lynch, and I'm a senior software engineer uh, on the cloud database engineering team at Netflix. Uh, I love every form of distributed system uh, that you can come up with. I mostly work with uh, databases like Cassandra, Elasticsearch, Zookeeper. Um, and then on the side, I dabble with service meshes. Um, and today, I would like to talk to you about four main things. So I'd, I'm going to start with a little bit about Netflix kind of cloud philosophy, how we try to approach deploying services uh, into the AWS cloud. Uh, then I'm going to talk about what makes stateful services particularly difficult uh, and perhaps challenging to deploy to cloud environments. Uh, and then I'll kind of get into, in my opinion, the fun part of the talk where we'll be talking about how do we actually solve these problems? How do we manage state uh, in the cloud? And then I'll close with a couple of kind of like order of magnitude improvements where like little, kind, like little changes can make big differences in how you manage state. All right, so let's get started with the cloud philosophy. Uh, Netflix's cloud philosophy is that the AMI, the Amazon machine, machine image, is the source of truth. Um, so we don't use configuration management. We don't use uh, many you know, typical things that you might use as your source of truth. Instead, we use the AMI as a source of truth. Uh, and there are kind of two pieces. I know you can't read this, but uh, the two pieces are your base AMI, uh, which has operating system information. For example, uh, in this case, a Cassandra AMI is based on a Xenial uh, base image. Uh, and that comes with a bunch of kind of baked-in defaults for us. Uh, things like enhanced networking turned on, you know, uh, good, good stuff like that using a HVM uh, VM type. And then on top of that, my team, the CDE team, layers on all of the pieces of software which turn this base AMI into a Cassandra image. And that's all of the things that we layer on. Um, you might not be able to see it, but the basic idea is things like specific kernels. Um, for example, like our databases run uh, very recent Linux kernels because they have significantly better I.O. schedulers. Um, you know, we might actually install like the database as well as like tooling to help us uh, collect metrics or, or do state transfers. So, this is really great, because if the, if the AMI is the source of truth, then you've achieved immutability. Um, the AMI is uh, the state of the, ins of, of the instance. Uh, to build new code, you just build a new AMI. To deploy, I mean, you guys have all heard about Netflix's red-black ASG deploys with new AMIs. Uh, ASG is just autoscaling groups, and ASGs just take care of it for you. If something fails, it spawns a new instance. Um, and this is like unicorns and rainbows, right? It's like pretty great. Except for that when you start looking at stateful instances, uh, you know, they have all the things that non-stateful instances have, like code, like services, different databases, configuration. Um, our data stores are maybe like more heavily tuned uh, at the OS level than, than stateless instances might be. Um, we have tooling. But what else, what else do we have on our stateful instances? Well, we have a whole lot of mutable state. And that mutable state kind of just throws that immutable AMI out the window. Because the moment that you start making you know, a, a certain shard of a database different from another shard, uh, then that becomes kind of a special uh, instance. And it's no longer based on the AMI. So I like to say that uh, at Amazon, or sorry, at Netflix, um, when we moved to a service-oriented architecture, we kind of just like threw all our state into a closet, um, which is the, the data tier. And it didn't make the problem go away. It just moved the problem from your applications uh, to your data stores and to your, to your stateful uh, caching layers. And this is uh, difficult because state is really heavy. And what I mean by that is that uh, when instances uh, fail or when hard drives fail, uh, it's very difficult to move and recover the state that you had before. And just to illustrate that, um, 
I've made a little diagram here that kind of shows a couple of uh, commonly used instances, uh, both for uh, on-disk storage and for in-memory storage. Uh, and this graph might be a, a little tricky, but on the x-axis, we've got essentially how much money that instance costs uh, per gigabyte of memory on the instance. So this is kind of just a normalized, you know, how much money am I spending per, in, per gigabyte of memory? And you can see that, for example, like the C5, uh, the C5D out there is like quite expensive per gigabyte because that's you know it's it's meant for compute versus like the X1E 16s which are made for large in-memory data stores uh, are very cheap per gigabyte uh, and then the size of these uh, circles or squares corresponds to the cost per gigabyte stored and what I'm trying to do there is show kind of that there are certain instances like D2 so the big purple blob is our D2 instances uh, and they are very cheap per gigabyte. Um, you can store a lot of data on them. But there's a trade-off, and that trade-off is on the y-axis, which is how long it takes to recover the state from that instance uh, if it fails. So this is a pretty simple calculation. It's basically just take the amount of data and divide by the network bandwidth. And you can see that a D2, if it fails, might take you a day to recover that state, compared to, for example, a C5D, where you can recover it on the order of 15 minutes. And then like your typically stateful instances, like your I2s take six hours, your I3s take two hours. Um, and this is really what I mean by state is heavy. Uh, it's this graph. It's the idea that when you lose your instances, it takes you a while to recover the state that you've lost. Uh, and this really leads to another realization, which is that stateful services are kind of just like different trade-offs along the you know, caches all the way down. Uh, it's caches all the way down, starting with your application. And the state that you store in your application might be in memory. Um, it's going to be very expensive, and it's not going to be terribly durable. Like those instances die frequently. Maybe you auto-scale them up and down using auto-scaling groups. Um, and then from your app, maybe you use some type of distributed in-memory store, like EVCache, which is pictured here, uh, essentially just memcache. Uh, and then on top of that, you, uh, you, you then move one layer down and again, uh, your cost is going down, but your durability is going up. So now you've hit a data store that stores its data in drives. Um, and then finally, of course, uh, you know, the, the source of truth for all of Netflix, if you will, is uh, the backups in S3. Right? These, are, these are where we get our durability from. And that's also the cheapest. But there are additional trade-offs. For example, uh, you're also trading off latency. The cheaper the, and the more reliable and more durable storage tends to be slower. So for example, uh, S3 is slower than drives, than, than hard drives, which are slower than in, in, in memory. But they're also more reliable. So these understandings kind of help us understand what makes stateful services different from stateless ones. Uh, in addition to them having state, uh, what that really means, though, is that every instance that accepts writes, that accepts mutations, is kind of a special snowflake, and you have to deal with it. Um, you can't just let it die and just be like, oh, well, we'll just launch a new instance from the AMI. You have to be cognizant that your state matters. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we've seen that, they have, that stateful instances have many components. For example, they have the different data stores, they have all those different packages, and uh, those different things require different iteration rates. And that's going to be kind of the key for us uh, dealing with stateful instances, is that we don't have to throw away the state for a lot of these uh, components. So this leads me to how we're going to manage state. So now that we kind of understand the problem, we can start trying to tackle it. How do we manage state? Well, the first strategy is don't manage state. It's a really great idea. We can just use a different closet and put all of our state somewhere else. 
So I kind of consider Amazon GP2, uh, EBS GP2 and IO1 to be uh, their own kind of closets in the sense of now your data store is stateless. The state is handled by EBS. You don't have to worry about it anymore. If your instance dies and a new one comes up, you just reattach the EBS volume. It takes a few minutes. And this is uh, a very easy and accessible way to turn your stateful instances into stateless instances. But there are some trade-offs. And the biggest trade-off is performance. So Amazon instant state, things like i3s. This, this here is a latency graph of i3 disk IOs. Uh, you can see here that I'm running a tool called Biosnoop, which allows you to inspect every single IO against the drive and see how fast it is. Um, it's a great tool. I use it all the time. And one thing that's amazing here is that Amazon i3, as an i3-4x large, is achieving a median uh, IO latency of 64 microseconds. That's insanely fast. Uh, and in fact, Instance store uh, these days, like things like NVMe Instance Store, is uh, often not the bottleneck in our systems anymore because it's so fast. But EBS is slower. Uh, EBS GP2, which I think is a fair comparison to instance uh, SSDs, is comparatively slow, and it's about an order of magnitude slower. So instead of 64 microseconds, we're going to be talking about 800 microseconds, which is still historically very fast, but comparatively it is slow. And so we have to be cognizant of this when we're designing our system. So for example, uh, we might care a lot more about our OS cache hit rates uh, on EBS-backed instances than on ephemeral ones. Because if we start missing the OS cache, uh, we're going to be seeing millisecond latencies instead of 60 microsecond ones. But EBS GP2 also has positives. Uh, so this is uh, a diagram from a paper that we put out about the effect of uh, kind of cluster size and Cassandra and the availability. And I just wanted to call it this one graph because I think that it is a very important one to understand, which is that when you use EBS and you make your stateful instances stateless, you actually get significant availability gains. And the reason for that is because when an instance fails, you don't have to wait that recovery time. Uh, which is really kind of, if you think about it, in a replicated database where maybe you have three copies, if you've lost one copy, you're at risk, right? And so you want to minimize the risk duration. So here we can see that uh, distributed databases like Cassandra on the y-axis, uh, we measure their outages uh, as expected centuries between outages. Um, that's pretty cool. That's something that is pretty unique to distributed databases. Um, but we can also see that the top line, which is uh, running with an EBS-attached volume, is almost one or even two orders of magnitude uh, more reliable than, than uh, running on instance store. And that purely just comes down to the math of recovery time. Uh, if you're curious about the source of these analysis, I've left links in the, in the, in the bottom of the slides so you can go check it out if you, you uh, want to see it for yourself. So we've talked about how GP2 has trade-offs. Uh, there's another option uh, in the strategy zero where we don't manage the state, which is that we can use an even bigger closet. Uh, so Amazon has a number of uh, really great database uh, as a service options. Uh, Netflix absolutely makes use of these. Um, things like Aurora, things like DynamoDB, ElastiCache. Uh, the state is someone else's problem. Uh, they'll pick up the pager. You don't have to. Um, and the only real trade-off is that you have to pay them for it. And that leads me to kind of this checklist of questions for should you run your own state, stateful services or should you make it Amazon's problem? Uh, well, if you need a specific data store API that Amazon doesn't provide, then perhaps you need to run your own data store. Uh, if you need to be under full control of the latency uh, SLOs or SLAs of that system, uh, then you're probably going to need to run your own data store. 
Maybe you need to meet specific regulatory requirements, have the end-to-end -end understanding of where your data is, that it's encrypted at all times, how it's encrypted, things like that. Um, number four is a common one for Netflix. At our scale, uh, you know, the budget of paying someone else to solve the problem can actually be quite significant. Um, and this can often be a driving reason for you to run your own stateful services. And then finally, I mean, if, if you like enjoying debugging difficult distributed systems problems, running stateful services is a great way to do that. All right, so now, uh, now that we've talked about the option which is not to manage state, now let's talk about how we are going to manage state if we've decided we're going to. So step one is isolating your state. And what I mean by this is thinking about how you lay out your EC2 instances. Um, in particular, the vast majority of the, inf of, of the code or, or of the services that run on an instance are probably pretty stateless. Things like the actual database itself, the Debian package, the OS image, the uh, system packages, background services. These things can be changed without affecting the mutable state, which is the really difficult problem. So we want to try to keep those stateless components to one side, and we want to keep the stateful components, things like the actual mutable data, maybe our log data, uh, that to a different. Side. And this will come in, in, in important later when we're actually trying to like, move the state around. Um, but the second thing that we have to do before we uh, start deploying stateful services is have a really good end-to-end -end test system. Um, and this really comes down to, if you're going to manage stateful services, uh, you have to be very careful that the changes that you're making aren't going to corrupt that state. Um, and the way that we do it at Netflix is we actually, for every change, oops, excuse me, for every change of a data store uh, AMI, we actually spin that up in a real multi-region cluster, um, typically six to 12 nodes, uh, and we send real traffic at it with a tool called NDBench, uh, which is a benchmarking tool that Netflix open sourced. Um, and what that does is it allows us to exercise failure modes uh, with real traffic load and then ensure that we're still meeting our SLOs and our SLAs. And that's the last stage. So we deploy and we test incrementally, uh, kind of taking incremental risk with our stateful service, uh, starting out in our test environment, moving out piece by piece to production. And the reason why I wanted to call this out is because I, we spend a lot of time at Netflix uh, when we manage stateful services, making sure that we're not corrupting our users' data. Um, and I think that a lot of, uh, and I think that that is one of the reasons that uh, we've been able to do it so successfully in the cloud is that we have these pipelines and we've built this infrastructure. All right, so let's get down to the strategies. So the first strategy for, for uh, managing instances is to actually just mutate uh, the instances in place. So all of those things which aren't the state, uh, we can just change without replacing the instance. And in order to do that, we have to be cognizant of what we're doing. So we have to make these mutations safe. Uh, there are lots of ways to do this. Uh, one commonly used way in industry is configuration management. Um, Puppet, Chef, these tools work. They work really well, and uh, they're industry standard. Uh, at Netflix, we take a different route. We mostly do package upgrades, um, because in our opinion, Debian packages, like, and upgrading Debian packages is a very tried and true technique. And one thing that we're starting to do more and more is actually using containers to kind of divvy up that stateful instance into smaller stateless ones that we can then replace as a unit. Um, containers are obviously less mature than Puppet, uh, or sorry, than configuration management or package upgrades, but we believe that it's safer because you're actually like replacing um, whole components at once rather than uh, putting your instance in like maybe an untested state. 
Why do we do this? Why do we mutate uh, one word? It's because of speed. Mutation of stateful instances is extremely fast. We can upgrade our data stores in about an hour. We can make configuration changes, things like changing a YAML setting or a, or a syscontrol in a few seconds. Uh, we can upgrade the operating system with a reboot in 15 minutes. Um, when, and we can do background process upgrades, things like sidecars or metrics, sidecars, you know, 30 seconds. So super fast. Uh, this means that our changes to do a whole cluster might take days. Uh, rather than maybe hours, uh, or sorry, rather than maybe weeks or months if we actually had to move the state around. Uh, but there's one type of change that we can't solve with mutations, and that's when we want to change the hardware. So if we want to change from I2s to I3s, or I3s to M5Ds, or M5Ds to Z1Ds, you get the idea. Um, we can't do that with mutation because we can't just, you know, reboot the hardware into a different configuration. So that's a serious drawback. Um, and at the end of the day, mutations uh, make up many of the ways that Netflix deploys software to stateful instances. Um, you know, it's super easy, it's fast, uh, it's tried and true. Um, and you know, one thing is that if you try to concentrate on making it uh, safe, it's, it can be pretty safe. That being said, uh, it completely violates the AMI as a source of truth. Uh, and this is a big problem for us at Netflix because we try to align more or less on the idea that the AMI is the source of truth uh, and that we don't have like random point mutations and transitions and states that are untested. Uh, and we've actually run into this where we end up with like fleet drift where some part of the database is running one version and some parts running a different version and then somebody makes an assumption and before you know it you've, you've caused an outage or worse corrupted data. So this, this can be problematic, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't use it. Uh, so uh, now for the rest of the talk, I'll be kind of building into these columns. So uh, strategies there we talked about, uh, Netflix absolutely uses those, EBS, um, RDS, DynamoDB, S3. We, we make very heavy use of them. Um, but when we do run our databases, uh, almost all of our data stores are stateful instances. Uh, we allow mutations on them uh, for the reason of speed. But there are other ways to manage state as well. Uh, so the second strategy I want to talk about is migrating state with your clients. Uh, so if you have a client of your stateful service, you can move state using that client. So in this example, we've got uh, a service, micro, macro, I don't really care. It's a service that's sending data to a in-memory cache, in this case, EV cache, running an old AMI, so AMI XYZ. And we would like to upgrade it to AMI ABC. In order to do that, we follow a simple five-step process. Uh, step one is we mirror writes between the old cache and the new one. Then we wait. Uh, caches hopefully have a reasonable TTL on them. Uh, we wait for the TTL. And then at that point, the data set in the new cluster should match the data set in the old cluster. At that point, we can start failing write reads over. Uh, so I put a little asterisk here because in practice, we don't do this, but I really wish we did. Um, which is you can read from the uh, old cluster as the source of truth, and then you can check it against the content of the new cluster and then make sure they match. Uh, in practice, what we do is we fetch from the new cluster, and then if we have a miss, we read from the old cluster. Uh, finally, once we're happy with the consistency of the data store, we live launch reads from the new cluster running the new AMI, and then at that point, we're done. We can retire the old cluster. Um, this is something that the cloud very e makes very easy because we can just make a new cache cluster, move writes over, and then tear down the old one, something that's very unique to cloud, cloud infrastructures. So migrating state at the client uh, compared to, for example, mutations uh, has some pros and cons. 
Uh, one of the pros is that it's relatively easy to do, uh, and it works well for ephemeral data stores, so things like caches, search engines, logs, Kafka, um, Elasticsearch, Memcache. But it has some cons too, which is, uh, and some of you might have noticed, it's not 100% consistent. What happens if an operation succeeds on one side but not on the other? Well, then you have a little bit of inconsistency. And for caches, search engines, and logs, this maybe isn't the biggest deal, but it's hard to use it for ephemeral data. Or, sorry, for non-ephemeral data, things like persistent caches, which is maybe an oxymoronic term. Um, but I'm curious, how many of you guys have caches where if the cache failed, your, your application would fail? A good, a good number of you. I mean, it's absolutely true at Netflix as well. I call those persistent caches because if you lose that state, then your databases are going to have a bad day. And you can't really use this technique for that. Uh, instead, what I, we have to do is the next strategy. All right, uh, you also can't use it, obviously, for sources of truth, things like your source of truth data store, uh, be it uh, MySQL database or Cassandra database. Uh, and this is legitimately more difficult than just like upgrading a Debian package. So uh, Netflix uses client state mutation for, uh, client-mediated mutation for uh, mostly ephemeral data, things like caches, search engines, and logs, uh, but we typically don't use it uh, for backwards-compatible um, sources of truth. All right, so the final strategy that I want to talk about is migrating state at the server. So we've talked about uh, just changing the instances as they are. We've talked about having your clients move the data for you. Uh, the final strategy I want to talk about is uh, just taking the state from one set of servers and putting it on the other ones. In order to do that, I want to uh, walk through a similar example where we've got a service talking to uh, a data store, in this case, uh, a Cassandra cluster running AMI XYZ. And the first thing we do is we use the capabilities of the cloud to just launch a whole mirror set of nodes. So in this case, we have three nodes in the old cluster, node one, node two, and node three. Uh, we launched three buddy nodes, uh, node one prime, two prime, and three prime, uh, and they're crucially running the new AMI. And now we just kind of go through a kind of choreographed dance. So we start by partitioning the app from node one. Uh, a very effective way to partition an app from a data store is to just stop the data store. Uh, and we move state from node one to node one prime as fast as we humanly can. And after we've done that, uh, we can now promote node one prime into the cluster. And it can start taking reads and writes uh, from the service. And in the background, we run consistency repair to make sure that any writes that may have happened in the meantime uh, are repaired. Typically, any distributed database which supports having a node fail will do this automatically for you. Um, because if nodes are failing, then they can stop, start, and then repair themselves. And then we simply repeat this process. So we can uh, you know, do this one by one, node one, then node two. And at the end of the day, we're going to end up with three nodes which are running the new AMI, have all of the state from the old nodes, uh, and are completely consistent. So that's the final step. We just kind of uh, do a final consistency repair. This strategy very much relies on your data store uh, allowing single node failures. And uh, an important thing to note here is that uh, we're very heavily leaning on our data store to uh, ensure data fidelity. So for example, Cassandra uh, and other scale-out data stores are kind of built for this type of uh, operation. But almost any data store uh, can work in this way. So uh, migrating state of the server is pretty, pretty great because it works for any distributed database. Uh, it exploits the concept that a single node can fail at any time. 
Uh, and one thing that, that we really like at Netflix is that this exercises total chaos on your clients because the IPs are changing, the nodes are moving around, you're restarting your database. Um, how many of you guys out there have heard, we can't restart the database. If we do that, latencies will go up. Nobody? Okay, a couple people. I hear that all the time. We can't restart the database. Well, a good way to make sure that you can restart the database is to restart your stateful services all the time when you're doing your upgrades. But on the drawback side, yeah, this system is pretty complicated. It requires complex orchestration. Uh, and like I talked about earlier with those uh, you know, data gravity uh, illustrations, moving state is slow. So moving all of that state from one instance to another takes some time. It's much faster with something like Amazon EBS or, or where you can just detach the volume from one instance and attach it to the other. Um, but this also presents some performance challenges, uh, not only in terms of how fast you can do it, uh, but you just lost, for example, your OS caches. So by moving from one set of hardware to the other, you've completely lost your OS page cache, which is keeping hot blocks of your uh, frequently accessed data in memory. Uh, you've also now moved from old instances which have run for a long time and have dem like demonstrably worked really well uh, to new instances which might have some hardware issues. Uh, so you have to like, think about these performance challenges when you're doing this all the time. And then finally, uh, and this is really important, this type of strategy requires that your data store be backwards compatible, um, which if any of you guys have worked with like Elasticsearch or Cassandra or other data stores, uh, they're not terribly backwards compatible all the time, uh, which naturally makes this strategy uh, kind of problematic. <coughs> all right, so to kind of summarize the strategies that we've talked about today, uh, we've started with the option of not managing state. We've then kind of moved uh, through mutating stateful instances to actually moving the state using clients, uh, and we've finished with moving the state using the server. Uh, and we mostly use the last technique for our sources of truth, things like Cassandra, things like uh, persistent caches. All right, so now that we kind of understand the high-level ideas, let's dive into some case studies of how we can, we can you know, take these basic ideas and we can really take it to 11. So the first thing that I want to talk about is a problem that we frequently ran into with mutation, which is that there's a lot of risk involved. So in this example, we have one AMI, which is you know, running some standard stuff like metrics, discovery, but some things I want to point out, it's running an older version of a data store, Cassandra 2.1. It's running an older version of an operating system, Ubuntu Trusty. Uh, it has some sys controls, things like, or excuse me, sysfs settings, like read ahead set to 128. Um, it's using upstart for all of its jobs. It's not running FS trim. Uh, that was a surprise for us. Uh, it's running a certain network uh, TC traffic control queuing discipline, uh, and it's using a deadline IO scheduler. So we want to mutate that instance uh, over to the instance uh, on the right with AMI ABC. And some things that I want to call out are some particularly tricky uh, parts of this mutation. So for example, uh, we're trying to go from one version of a database to another. Uh, that's fun. Uh, we're trying to go from one version of an init system to another. We're trying to go from upstart to systemd. We're trying to go from one set of well-tested you know, Ubuntu packages and trusty to another set of well-tested packages in Xenial. Uh, and we're trying to change uh, you know, disk I.O. schedulers and, and network I.O. schedulers. So I like to say, like, how even do we do this? Like, each one of these mutations is kind of like special case. Like, in one case, we're going to go do a syscontrol command. In one case, we're going to go, you know, bring down the database, wait a little bit, bring it back up. Uh, in another case, we're going to, like, maybe uninstall a Debian package, reinstall it. Uh, for something like upstart to systemd, like, I mean, how do you even do that um, live without, without removing the instance? Well, I... 
some of these are frankly impossible to do live without downtime. Uh, things like moving your init process from upstart to systemd, that's going to require us to reboot the instance at least. Um, things like upgrading the database, this is pretty scary. Uh, and if we're trying to do that mutation along with all the other ones, uh, who knows what could happen. Uh, but there might be some easy ones like you know, switching queuing disciplines. That's like an online operation that we can do pretty easily. So what we did at Netflix was we looked at this problem. We said, OK, well, we know that in order to handle the hard problem, so the hard problem is going from like upstart to systemd or from 2.1 Cassandra to 3.0 Cassandra, we're going to have to reboot the instance. And so what we did was we designed a way of rebooting the instance that where you would uh, start running AMI XYZ, and then after a reboot, you would be running the new AMI. And let me explain how that works. So it's a simple three-step process. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with live CDs? Yeah. Uh, we essentially built a live CD for our, for our AWS stateful instances. Uh, and the way that this works is we look up some metadata, like which AMI would we like to run, in this case, uh, ABC. We write that into a little in-memory bootloader. Uh, and then we reboot the AMI, excuse me, the AWS EC2 instance uh, into an in-memory uh, imager, which essentially is a live CD. That goes to S3, gets the root volume for that AMI, and just blasts it onto the root volume. Then followed with a second reboot, uh, now our instance is running the new AMI, ABC. It loads its data, starts the database, and we're good to go. So, uh, we've been using the AMI live upgrade technique uh, to take our stateful instances where we don't want to lose the ephemeral drives uh, and uh, safely move from one tested AMI to another. Uh, and this is really great because we only ever run tested AMIs that have gone through that pipeline that I talked about earlier. Uh, there's no like partial states where like we're sort of kind of in AMI ABC and sort of kind of in AMI XYZ. We're either running one known state or another. There's no data transfer, there's no IP change, which means that the probability of corrupting data is very low. And this can be done remarkably fast. Uh, so in, in production, we can uh, live upgrade AMIs in about 10 minutes per node. The vast majority of that time is just the time it takes to write data to the root volume. Uh, but there are some cons. Uh, in particular, there are probably better ways to achieve this goal. So containers are a good way to do that. Uh, however, even with containers, you couldn't, for example, change the underlying operating system. Uh, we think that the more promising technique is something like active-passive flashing, uh, the way that, for example, Chromebooks work, or the way that uh, you know, CoreOS upgrades work, where you kind of have two root volumes, and then you can kind of like switch between them. So we think that that's probably maybe the next step of this technique. And it obviously, again, doesn't work for instance-type upgrades. We can't magically turn the instance from an I I2 to an I3 just by rebooting it. Although, Amazon, if you're listening, that'd be pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and finally, it uh, confuses your security team, uh, because all of the metadata about the instance is still saying it's running this old AMI. So like, we get lots of notices from our security team being like, hey, you guys are running an AMI from like a year and a half ago. And we're like, no, no, trust us. It's actually not. Um, so that's kind of confusing. Something like active-passive flashing, or, or if EC2 made this a native product, then, uh, then, then we wouldn't have that problem. All right, so AMI Live Upgrade has been hugely helpful to us to safely make mutations. Um, it's how, for example, Netflix did the Ubuntu Trusty to Ubuntu Xenial Upgrade uh, just a few months ago. All right, so the next problem that I want to talk about is when you are moving state around uh, or rebooting your instances for your AMI Live Upgrade, uh, your OS page cache gets completely uh, eliminated. So 
The OS page cache is this, um, it's what most of your memory on an instance is probably being used for when you're running a stateful instance. So in this case, we have a Java program, in this case running Cassandra. It's using 12 gigs of memory on the instance. Uh, 100 gigs of memory is being used for the OS page cache, which is caching the most frequently used blocks uh, of, of your underlying ephemeral drives. And in a healthy state, a database is doing almost all of its operations against uh, blocks of data that are cached in the page cache. Typically, if you're missing the page cache more than like a few percentage, uh, then your performance will be quite poor uh, and your customers will be sad. So this is a problem because any time that you reboot or replace an instance, so using any of the techniques that we're talking about, if you use the AMI upgrade and reboot it, or if you uh, migrate state to new instances, uh, then you're going to lose your cache. Uh, and this is really problematic because your very fast P99 latencies now spike and you might cause an incident. So that's no good. So what can we do about it? Well, it seems pretty straightforward. We can warm the caches. Uh, and there's an excellent tool written by a Netflix engineer, Josh Snyder, uh, called Happy Cache, which does exactly this. So when you're running the old AMI, you can dump the metadata about uh, which blocks of files are cached. Uh, it relies on the min-core syscall, if you're curious. Uh, this happens very fast. It takes about two minutes to generate the dump file, which is just metadata. So it doesn't contain any sensitive information. The only thing that it contains is these blocks of these files are hot in OS cache. Then you can reboot, replace to your heart des desire. Uh, you then take that happy cache dump uh, file and you put it on the new instance, or in the case of an AMI upgrade, it's already there. Uh, all you have to do now is do happy cache load, which goes at full bandwidth of your drives, which on modern EC2 instances is exceedingly fast. Um, I think for our i3 um, 8x large instances, we can, we can fully freshen the cache, cache in a few minutes, um, which is totally worth it because your P99s don't suffer. When you start your data store in step three, your data store comes up as if it had never gone down. Um, and your clients are never the wiser that under the hood, you've completely replaced the hardware out from underneath them. So this is a crucial tool that we rely heavily on in production to ensure that when we're, we're moving state from one instance to the other, uh, we can do so performantly and quickly. All right, so uh, let's keep going. Let's keep talking about more fun problems. Uh, so now we're, we're, uh, we've, we, you know, we're doing these live AMI upgrades and uh, we're you know, keeping the caches warm, we're making sure that we don't have any performance impact, and now we hit this really annoying problem, which is that when you're running at scale, uh, the naive algorithm doesn't work so well. So on the left here, you see uh, a 12-node cluster, which uh, if we do one node at a time with a 400-gig data set, it takes about 20 minutes uh, for 400 gigs to transfer with i3 4x larges. Uh, so doing one node at a time with this process of replacing instances would take you four hours. Not so bad. You know, you start in the morning, go get coffee, take four-hour coffee break, come back, and uh, you've got new instances. <laughs> but when you get to higher scales, like maybe 300 nodes across three, uh, three regions, so 100 nodes per region uh, with 400 gigs, if you just do one node at a time, then it's going to take you four days to upgrade that cluster. And this is a problem. Because what if the upgrade is crucial to, for example, your, your streaming working? What if uh, angry Netflixers are at your door because they can't stream? Well, four days is a long time to go without Netflix. So this is a problem, and we have to solve it. <coughs> so how do we solve it? Well, uh, the cloud makes it pretty easy because you can exploit massive parallelism. So uh, at Netflix, we back up our databases. Uh, we even restore them sometimes. I, 
And it turns out that the ability to restore your database can be really helpful when you want to migrate state from one to another. So if instead of uh, taking one node at a time and following that algorithm of like take the node out, move the state, put it back, uh, if instead we could say, hey, we have the entire data set in S3 as of like a minute ago, because we're doing continuous backups. So we can just spin up 300 nodes and have them all pull down their backups from like you know, five minutes ago. And uh, if you, you know, write, write this system properly, uh, you can get the entire data set of any scaled data store restored in about uh, the time it takes to do one node in the old system. So that's where this 20 minute comes in. So the time to replace these, these instances now takes about seven minutes per node, just to kind of restart the database, um, plus uh, 20 minutes for the initial download. And this is amazing, because it means that you are going to go from those four days to a few hours, or if you push the parallelism all the way. So hopefully, if you're deploying a distributed database into Amazon, uh, you have availability zone tolerance. Uh, hopefully, you can deal with one AZ failing. Um, well, a good way to make sure that you can deal with one AZ failing is to take the entire AZ down when you're replacing it um, with a new set of hardware. So if you do entire AZs at once, uh, which maybe, you know, your mileage may vary. But if you take down an entire AZs at once using this process, you can replace a, a data store that used to take four days in about 50 minutes. So that's even better than the naive algorithm on the 12-node cluster. And one of the nice things about this type of algorithm is that it's, it, it, doesn't, it scales kind of sublinearly in the sense of because you're doing all of the data recovery in parallel all at once, um, you don't have to... Uh, you don't have to kind of pay that cost for each node. So yeah, with this you know, kind of simple realization that we've got our data store backups and we can use them, uh, you can have multiple orders of magnitude faster upgrades of your stateful instances. And the cloud very uniquely enables this because Amazon S3 is one of the most impressive stateful systems uh, ever. Like it, I've seen it do absolutely insane bandwidth to, to EC2. All right. But let's say you start doing this and everything's wonderful, and then you run into this you know, somewhat frustrating problem, uh, which is that you, know, you, can, you can download all that data, and you can throw it on your hard drives, but do you actually know that that data is the data that was on the old instance? Well, the only way to know is to check. And here I've uh, kind of put together a little bit of an example where uh, we have a, a node with 800 gigabytes of data. You can see that mostly it's uh, one large file, although most of the files are small. Uh, and we're just trying to get a checksum of all the data. So if you just kind of naively paralyze on files, here a little bit of, sprinkle a little bit of xargs on there, uh, and, and you can hash all your data in an hour and 22 minutes. Well, that's really slow, especially if we're trying to replace our instances in a few minutes. Well, if each one uh, takes an hour and 22 minutes to verify, you know, we're going to be around here all year waiting for our data to verify. So how do you solve this problem? Well, historically, we've solved this problem by just not checking. <laughs> but we decided that that was a bad idea. So now we check. Uh, and in order to solve the problem, we started with, well, what is the problem? So I ran, went and I ran HTOP. That's what I saw. Can anybody identify what resource we are running out of? Yeah, we're running out of CPU. Uh, SHA-256 is a you know, CPU-intensive 
uh, hash function. And in fact, most uh, cryptographic hash functions are going to be quite slow. Uh, we can confirm the suspicion that it's CPU bound and not anything else bound by looking at the drives. Uh, so here, I'm running an iostat command, which uh, shows us what kind of throughput we're getting. Um, I3 NVMe drives should be able to get a lot more throughput than this. Um, this is pitiful. 400 megabytes per second when we're running all 16 cores. Like, come on, we're going to be here all week. Like, th there's no, there's no, this is not good. And then when we drive, when we, when we're reduced to a single core, uh, SHA-256 is only able to get 166 megabytes per second, which if you have 800 gigabytes of data, like, this is going to take hours. This is no good. So the solution to this uh, might seem pretty straightforward. Uh, the solution is to use a better hashing function. Uh, so there's a great hash written by, um, by Jan Collette. Uh, he's also the author of the LZ4 compression algorithm uh, called XXHash. And with XXHash, using the same naive paralliz parallelization, uh, instead of an hour and 20 minutes, hashing all that data takes 12 minutes. And the reason that it's so much faster is because XXHash can actually push an EC2 instance to its disk uh, throughput limit. As opposed to being limited by CPU, now we're limited by the NVMe drives, which amazingly on an i3-4x large is pushing four gigabytes per second, um, which means that if we do a little bit of uh, intelligence, on, instead of just doing a you know, find pipe to XARGs, if we do like a little bit of intelligence with like using a little bit of a Merkle tree, uh, we can hash that 800 gigs in about four minutes because we can get four gigabytes per second the entire time. Uh, this benchmark uh, was kind of throttled by that single process, hashing that single file. Um, whereas if we split that file up and then hash each one in parallel and then combine it into a resulting hash, then we can get that four gigabytes per second um, whole, the whole time. And by the way, it's not a typo. That is gigabytes per second, not gigabits. Uh, NVMe drives are so amazingly fast uh, that it's almost never your bottleneck these days. All right. So we've gone through a couple of examples of how we can get order of magnitude improvements with like relatively minor changes. Uh, I just want to wrap up by kind of going back to uh, the overview of the talk. So uh, we have many strategies, and each one of these strategies we can apply you know, relatively simple, straightforward optimizations to take them from something that might take uh, you know, months or weeks to something that takes a few minutes. And just to reiterate, uh, not managing state is, again, a very viable option. Um, it's often the right choice, especially if you don't have the engineering resources to devote to some of these systems. Um, but if you do want to manage state, then uh, you have three main options. You can mutate it. If you mutate it, make sure you make it safe. Make sure that you avoid drift. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have a very bad outage on your hand. Um, if you need to actually migrate the state from one set of hardware to the other, you can do it with clients. Uh, the only thing to be wary of here is, of course, consistency. Uh, and coordinating with your clients is going to be the key. And then finally, uh, you can migrate state using the server. This is by far the safest option, um, but it also uh, takes a little bit of trickery uh, in order to make it quick to do and uh, performant for your clients. So with that, uh, thank you guys very much. Uh, I'd be happy to take any questions uh, down here at the end or outside afterwards.